0: Give ear, O oh my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded Our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. As the first eight verses of Psalm 78, the first 39 verses of which are the Psalm appointed for today, Tuesday, March the 22nd, 2022. Thanks for listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm your host, John Green. Um, I appreciate you being along today. We are. Continuing our look at Jeremiah's prophecy today we're in the seventh chapter, verses twenty one to thirty four. The gospel reading is John seven, thirty seven to fifty two, and the epistle is the letter to the church at Rome, chapter four, verses thirteen to twenty five. So remember, yesterday we were also in Jeremiah 7, and we were looking at the complaint that God made against his people, and that was they were spiritually adulterous. They were chasing after the Baals, and they were doing all these other sinful things, and yet they would come to the temple and make this appropriate sacrifices without the intention of amending their ways. They're, they're doing these things that, that basically they're saying, okay, this, these sacrifices will pacify Yahweh. We, we know that we've committed these sins, but we're going to make these sacrifices in order that he would be pacified. We're doing exactly what he told us to do. We're making the appropriate sacrifices. And here today is, is God's response to that attitude. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. I don't care about these things. Do whatever you want with these things. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I didn't speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. Those aren't the important things. Those are not the things that are, that are most important. If you follow God's logic, it's, it's be righteous people. Do the right things with a recognition that, that you're going to mess up from time to time. And so when you do, here's the remedy for that. And those are the sacrifices. But at first, what he wanted was obedience. But this command, he says, I gave them concerning, But um, I gave them, obey my voice, and I'll be your God. It's simple as that. He didn't say, we started with burnt offerings and sacrifices. We started with, obey my voice, and I'll be your God. And you shall be my people. And walk in all the way that I commanded you, that it may be well with you. In other words, just, just do what I told you to do. Stay There, don't color outside the lines, stay there and everything will be fine. But they didn't obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels, had the stubbornness of their evil hearts, and went backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants and prophets to them, day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but they stiffened their neck, and they did worse than their fathers. So you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. That's what he's speaking to Jeremiah now. You should call to them, but they will not answer you. And you shall say to them, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline. Truth is promised, has perished, it's cut off from their lips. And I've said this multiple times recently, and that is, is that what God wants is a holy nation and a kingdom of priests to serve him. And so what they've done is they've decided that God's more happy with our sacrifices than he is with our righteousness. So because we're prosperous, we can afford lots of atonement for our sins. We can can afford all these sacrifices. Let's just keep the party going and keep the good times rolling. He said, so you say all these things and say it's, This is the nation that didn't obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline. Truth is perished. It's cut off from their lips. Cut off your hair and cast it away. Raise a lamentation on the bare heights. For the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. And what he's saying is mourn and lament. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that's called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom. A high place would be typically as an alternative place of worship, and an alternative place of worship means they're worshiping an alternative God. So to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come to my mind. I didn't even think about these things. Nobody would have thought about those things. Molech did, and that's in Leviticus. He says, don't sacrifice your children to Molech. And he said, here, that's what you're doing. What is it you're chasing that causes you to want to do this? And is it freedom? Is it prosperity? Is it What is it? And here we live in a society now with, you know, we are one of the most uh, permissive societies in the world regarding abortion, throwing our children in the fire. It's quite literally, in some cases, exactly what happens. It's, it, it breaks my heart and it makes me physically ill to think about these things. It's amazing what we have done and and it's just one further step away from god when we start down that road towards abortion and abortion on demand and and right now we're in a place where that's being challenged not from moral grounds but from legal grounds um and i know that there are some anti-abortion groups or pro-life groups however you want to say it doesn't matter to me um, I am against abortion, so it doesn't bother me to call myself anti-abortion. Um, but but the, that's the goal of some, is to make legislative change and to, to attack Roe v. Wade as bad law. Um, but there's got to be always a moral component to why we challenge the killing of innocent life like that. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will be no more called Topheth, or the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, but the Valley of Slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth because there's no room elsewhere. In other words, all the graves are going to be filled and they're going to have to do it all the way out there. And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth and none will frighten them away. In other words, it's going to be a complete slaughter and a complete wipeout and and there's nobody going to be even there to bury the dead. And I will silence in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride for the land shall become waste. And, you know, I've said this before, but, but we went to Rwanda. Suzanne and I did about four and a half years after the genocide had ended. You know, the genocide only lasted about 90 days in 1994. And so we were there in early 1999, and it was still a spooky kind of a place to be, to be perfectly honest with you. And we went to different sites where genocides had happened. And it was still, even after four and a half years, a really, really fresh wound on the land and there, there were haunted faces everywhere we went. People who had witnessed genocide. Um, as we drove through the land, through the land from place to place, we'd see gangs of of men in basically pink. Um, it looks like short pant pajamas because uh, the, the the top and the bottom would both be pink. And, and they were prisoners. They were the ones who had been part of the genocide. And so we just saw the devastation in the land and and couldn't even begin to imagine. What did it actually look like in 1994 and 1995 when when there were 800,000 people killed over a 90-day period in 1994? And so what did the land look like? Because afterwards, many, many of those who committed crimes of genocide went um, out of the country. And so the the land would have been completely defiled and despoiled at that time, and it would have looked like it was empty. And there were nobody to to. Uh, bury those corpses for a long period of time and the people who committed the genocide didn't care they didn't bother they weren't going to bury these corpses but it, it, it i've seen a little bit of what this looks like and, and it's sickening absolutely sickening and, and i can't imagine god having to do that to his own people in the gospel today uh, jesus remember had gone up to the feast and it's the feast of booths and it, it celebrates um, a time when the end of dry season is come, has come or should be coming, let's say it that way, because it's, it, they're reasonably predictable, but sometimes there's drought. So on the last day of the feast, the great day, and, and on that day what they would do was they would come forward with water, and they would pour that water out. And they, it, it was a sign of faith that they believed that God was going to send the rain. So on that day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink so you can see how that fits with the theme of what's going on. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, but as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. And you've heard me talk about that image before. It's what the Samaritans were looking for, was this prophet-like Moses that Moses had promised would come. And so some of the people there are saying, this is that prophet. And then others said, this is the Christ, which is this other Messianic figure that they see is going to be greater than Moses, essentially. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? I mean, they keep, it's amazing to me how much they keep letting this piece of, quote, knowledge get in the way of making a proper evaluation of what they see and hear. But we're perfectly capable of making that same exact mistake. Right? This is the thing I know about somebody, and I'm going to let that stand in the way of me being able to properly hear what it is they have to say. And I have learned things from all manner of people in my life. Once I get past what I know, and I'm now able to listen to that person. It might be that I I have a problem with them in some shape, form, or fashion, and and I'm allowing that to keep me from hearing God speak through them. So here it's because they think he's from Galilee. Hadn't the Scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? What did they forget about the census? Did they forget about the census that happened when Jesus was born, around the time of his birth, when he absolutely would have had to go to Bethlehem to be born? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So the division isn't based in really the evidence of their eyes. It's based in this idea that he's from Galilee. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you you not bring him? And the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Because that's all that really matters, right? I mean, it's going to be follow the leader, uh, is literally what they're saying or suggesting. But this crowd does not know the law is accursed. Well, that's on you. You had a responsibility to teach these people the law. The fact that they don't know it is a reflection of you and not them. If that's true, what you just said, then you bear all the responsibility for that. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does they replied are you from galilee too search and see that no prophet arises from galilee i mean they keep going back to the same old same old and it it's it's baffling to me that they keep doing this but but it is what it is it's because of this spiritual blindness and a reluctance to hear anything from out there. When they refer to this crowd that doesn't know the law, who they're referring to, remember we saw those that term yesterday in in our gospel reading where the crowd wanted to know you have a demon. Who in the world is trying to kill you? But then what we see a little later in yesterday's lesson is, is that it says the people of Jerusalem seem to know that. And so when they're speaking of the crowd here, we have to assume that they're speaking of the same crowd from yesterday's lesson, and that is those people who are not from here, those non-Judeans And so it's the people out there in Galilee and all these other places that they look down on the people from the Galilee because there was a there was a big mixture of people there. And so a a lot of the Galileans, those who were in the north, had had sort of um, been co-opted into the Roman value system. And so the people in in Judea, which is where Jerusalem is, they saw themselves as superior to those people. Because they had strict adherence to the law, but those people from the hinterlands were, well, you know, they were compromised. And so that's who they're talking about when they say the crowd, but it's a deep cynicism towards those non-Judeans. It's sort of the way New Yorkers and Los Angelinos feel about us who are out there in flyover land. That's a good uh, sort of way of thinking about that. In the Romans passage, Paul yesterday, remember, had talked to us about that we are saved by faith alone. That that Abraham was uh, the covenant with Abraham was based on his faith. Circumcision was given later as a seal of that, but but faith is the operative thing, not works. He says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world didn't come through the law, but came through the righteousness of faith. In other words, the promise came before there was any sort of law, before there was even a law concerning circumcision. For if it's, by the, if it's the adherence of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there's no transgression. In other words, if, if law is not spelled out, then we don't know what sin is because we don't know where it deviates from righteousness. That's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And, and Paul used to think that he was the father only of Jews. But here he's arguing that, nope, he's the father of all who believe, because he was the man who believed. As it's written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. In other words, he continued to believe even when it it seemed impossible because of their ages. But God, nothing is impossible for him. And so what we're told is, is that he continued to believe. In spite of the fact there was no hope left in a physical way, but he continued to believe because he believed in God who was able to transcend and do as he pleased and as he willed. That's why, Paul tells us, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, quote, it was counted to him, unquote, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So in other words, there's a two-part process here to what happens with Jesus. He's delivered up, he is crucified for our trespasses, and then he was raised for our justification. So in other words, we know that we are justified in the risen Christ just as we were crucified with Christ. So both those two pieces of action are important for us. And if we're justified, then what we're called to is a life of faith and obedience to God's will. We're raised to a new life in Christ. And it's important that we embrace that identity, that, that we see all that other stuff as sin, and that we move away from those things and, and live in a different way. It's important that we do that. It's important we accept Jesus' offer of the Spirit so that we can have those rivers of living water from within us. It's important that we recognize him for who he is and that we celebrate him for what he has done.